as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 6, it's just reminded that as we come to each chapter, as we come to each section, uh, we have to remind ourselves this is a letter. This is a letter written to a church. And so there's context to that letter. And so even though we, we started the series in Ephesians and you start in chapter 1 and 2 in an overview, uh, sometimes you haven't been there. Sometimes if you're anything like me, you forget. And, and you have to be reminded and kind of reset. And so Ephesians chapter 6 is still building off of this, this idea of how do we walk? How, how do we navigate through life? How do, we, how do we walk as Christians in Ephesians 5.15? How do we walk not as unwise and foolish people, but as wise people? Um, how, how is it that we, we walk in that manner worthy of the calling, worthy of the uh, the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so everything comes into um, the, the umbrella then of reminding ourselves that, that this is a continuous conversation that, that's, that's taking place. And so today we're, we're continuing one of those sub-conversations, which is submission and subjection. Um, again, we, we've studied about how wives are to be subject to their own husbands, but we also understand that we're subject to one another. We understand that that comes from the foundation of, of Jesus emptying himself and, and being subject even to the point of death. And so we, we are all in some way, shape, or form uh, subject to somebody. Um, and so today as we come into chapter 6, we, we, we're transitioning from looking at that relationship between husbands and wives, especially as husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, even sacrificially. The problem is, is as always, is that, that underlying factor of, of sin, but specifically in the specific sin that plagues us all, uh, really the, the worst virus that's uh, been unleashed on mankind, is the sin of selfishness. We, we, we just... We, we have a drive for ourselves, even to the point that, that in, in Ephesians chapter 5, that <clears throat> the husband is to love his wife. And here's an example, as he loves himself, right? That's the example. Why? Because he, it, it's a given. I know you know how to do that. I know you love you, I self. I know you're really into you. So... Try to shift a little bit of that to wifey, right? Um, now think about that. It, it's, we have such a blind drive for ourselves uh, that, that that would be the go-to example, right? Um, selfishness makes the self the king, makes the self the, the autonomous God, we hear it in little things, you know, nobody tells me what to do. Uh, you're not my boss, uh, you know, for kids. You're not my mom, right, to the siblings. 
And the idea there of autonomy is I self-govern. I self-rule. I rule myself. There's, there's no authority. There's no king. There's no president. There's not even a God who really governs and rules me. I, I, I know better. I know best. I know what's best for me, for myself. Um, and so, you know, you'll, you'll even hear little, little seeds with, with the kids, right? Well, when I grow up, and what's the idea there? Well, when I grow up, I'll be like the parent, the older brother, the older sibling. I will be, again, the boss. I will be in charge. There's just this obsession and drive with that. I mentioned before, you know, we have, we've had movements, you know, the, 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 the anti-authority, the anti-establishment. It's like, well, what is the, I, whatever they're teaching, I'm against. The opposite, whatever the, you know, that's the whole thing we're seeing now. If, if you've listened to the Antifa spokespeople, which you don't really hear a lot, you'll, you see them, you don't hear from them, but their whole premise is like, we're not for anybody, really. We're just against everything. It's like, so what do you believe? I just don't believe in what you believe. It's crazy. It just goes around in a, in a circle. Um, Interesting, and, and one of my favorite things to do is to actually read, you know, I, I love history, and to read the actual sources. And so when you think of something like an incredible, incredible event like the Mayflower, it's like, well, what were they thinking? Like, who are these people? What happened? Well, we have the actual journals and writings from William Bradford, who was on the Mayflower. We don't have to guess. We can read it first person and and it's it's direct communication one of the things that happens on the mayflower remember this is a group of 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 people that are fleeing religious persecution from from england and then and then holland and they're going to go to america and all they want to do is freely worship god that's all they want to do and they're on the ship and they're on the ship with well, like, you know, you, you, you got to have like some real men who know how to make things and build things. So they called them the strangers. So you had the saints, you know, the Christians. And then the strangers, well, these were the carpenters. These were the, the, the workmen. These were the craftsmen. These were, they realized, well, if we're going to start a new civilization, we have to have people who, you know, know how to make things. So they had a bunch of those guys on board. Well, right as they're getting ready, which is wasn't explained that they're getting ready to land in America. You would have thought they would have thought about this before. And I'm sure in the back of their mind they did, but they come up with this document called the Mayflower compact, which is really one of those first steps towards, uh, you know, the, the constitution. But the idea in the Mayflower compact is as they're sitting in the, uh, in, in, you know, on the ship, probably about this many people, you know, with, without the, the kids, it's like, well, we need to, figure out how we're going to live together. You know, it's like, well, well, we've been in Bible study for 10 years and we've been in church together for 10 years and, and we follow the, the law of the Lord and we're all, but you guys, I mean, you're a bunch of, you know, construction randos. We don't know your, we don't even know where you're from. We don't know what you've done. Um, we need to figure this out. <clears throat> and so that's the Mayflower Compact. It's, 
it, it's, it's an agreement between the settlers. It's a social contract. That's why we have what we call civilization. Without it, you have anarchy. And so the rules of civilization actually begin with not, not, not just, okay, here's some basic principles, but what are we going to give up? Because you can't all do what you want to do. You can't just figure out, well, however fast my car can go down Kent Kingley, you know, Jim's driving, you know, riding his donkey and, you know, uh, somebody else is, you know, driving a Porsche. It's like, okay, those two, we, we got to figure out some rules, right? And somebody's going to have to give up some of their rights or desires. Um, and so you have to learn how to yield. Well, we yield to scripture. We come to scripture and say, well, what's the starting point? Well, the starting point isn't my starting point. It isn't uh, a group of three people starting point. It's not a, well, let's just have at it and we'll just kind of throw in our, our bad ideas and then, you know, that'll produce the ultimate bad idea. Um, no, our, our starting point is we're going to yield to scripture. We're going to, this is God's word. God is going to tell us, instruct us how, how we live. That, that's why civics, that's why the law is moral. The, the whole point of our local laws, this is why it's so um, offensive to us when we hear the laws that are going on right now is it is morality. They try to say it's not. By definition, it is. We're, we're dictating the morals of how we live and how we live as a society. Well, our starting point is with scripture. Um, and see, here's the problem. The problem is, and you take America, for example, where, where our cornerstone of America isn't Christ. The cornerstone of America is freedom. Beautiful, sweet liberty, which is the most amazing thing unleashed on mankind. Freedom. The problem is liberty devours liberty. Freedom eats itself alive. When you have two opposing views, they can't both be right. When you have two opposing freedoms, they, they, they come and they clash with each other again. So what we have to do is say, well, well not me, we. How are we going to navigate this together if we're going to have a civilization? We can't just say, well, you just have freedom to do whatever you want, right? That's, that's not going to work. So we have to have law. Well, so there's some law established. The problem is the law was never intended for perfection. In, in fact, it, it, it shows you that you won't be perfect. The, the law is a, a guideline. The law is a standard. And law will, in essence, reveal what you don't keep. And the problem is, is that we have different views of the law. Some people got to keep the law. Some people got to make the laws of the laws of the laws, right? We, the, the legalists. And then you have other people that want to, well, they don't care about the law at all. And then there's other people like, well, how far 
can we push the law? How far can we go? And their view of the law is then, how low can I go? <laughs> right? Scripture's view of the law, First Peter, be perfect. Be holy. Absolute perfection is the standard uh, that, that God desires. Any breaking of that then, any sinful act of that, then is you're not pure, you're not holy, you're not perfect, and that's why you need forgiveness and atonement in the blood of Christ. Well, <clears throat> the Bible comes up with this radical idea of not only is there law and the law of the absolute moral law giver, what makes God the absolute moral law giver? Because he's the absolute moral law being. He made it. It's his. He sets the rules, right? Well, there's this radical idea in scripture. This radical idea, again, that has to do with being selfless, which is we need to, when we think of our freedom and liberty, think about loving thy neighbor as thyself. So not just a husband loving his wife, which that's not always that easy to love your wifey as yourself. Now the scripture also re really reveals, well, here's the bigger picture. Love your neighbor. I don't know if you guys know all your neighbors. Um, neighbors aren't as easy to love as you might think. <laughs> neighbors can be very difficult to like. Uh, neighbors can be hard to not want to do things because of the way they are. And we're called by scripture again to take a high view, the highest view. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yield to them. Be in subjection to them. We must take the high road. Well, that's our standard, not just for our neighbors, our community, our civilization. That's our, our, our standard in the home. And part of Ephesians is, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to get you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It needs to start in your house. It needs to start under your roof. And so today we're going to see, um, we're going to only look at two, but there's in chapter six here in the first nine verses, there's four practical examples of, of how we walk worthy by being subject to authority in the home. The first one is a children's subjection. Second one is father subjection. Third is slave subjection. And then finally, a master subjection. So today we're going to tackle uh, two of them, children's subjection and a father's. But again, quick review of, of Ephesians so that we can kind of come forward. In chapter one, we, we were reminded that it's by the will of God um, us who are faithful in Christ, we've, we're reminded that we're, we're chosen, chosen for what? To be holy and blameless, very high standard, and reminder that we are sub in subjection to Christ in all things. And there's 
uh, I believe it's 13 different times in chapter 1, which sets the tone for Ephesians. That's in Christ Jesus, in Christ, in and through Jesus, in him, in him, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him. About every other verse is a reminder that what we're asking you to do is because of Christ. That, that, that's our, 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 our point. We see in chapter 2, and we're reminded that, look, you were dead in your sins. Your sin was leading you on a path of destruction. Bad news. The wages of sin is death. Unpaid sin is a free ticket to eternal life in hell. Horrible news. Bad news. How much does it cost? You can't pay. What can I do? You can't do enough. How, how can I stop it? You can't stop it. What if I don't know? Still accountable. Bad, 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 bad. Helpless. Sinful, helpless, ungodly enemies. Is what Romans 5 says. You were dead in your trespasses. You were. You formerly walked that way. But God, being rich in his mercy, verse 4 because of his great love, which, which he loved us. In this magnificent verse, chapter 2, verse 8, verse eight for by grace, by grace we're saved through faith. <clears throat> and not of yourselves, it's a gift from God. The free gift from God is grace. You were dead, you're no longer dead. Okay, we move forward. There's no such thing as Jew or Gentile. We're all one. It doesn't matter. We follow Christ. Chapter 3 then sets that tone that so we may dwell together with Christ. Christ is in our hearts. He resides with, how, how do I do this? How do I live in this this, this new way, well, Christ dwells in you. He's, he's the little engine that could, right? So as, as hard as it may seem, and it is hard, as difficult as it is to have the highest standard, Christ dwells in your heart. So we, 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 we trust. We trust him. We trust his ways. We trust what he says. Therefore, chapter 4, walk in a way, walk in a manner, follow the path to maturity. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And the great reminder, <clears throat> not, verse 14 in chapter 4, don't be like immature, young, naive children tossed here and there by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness in deceitful scheming. Don't be that way. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We have a way. We have a pattern. You, you don't have to be carried about by every wind of doctrine. How do you not... How, how is it that you prepare yourself for all the different false religions, false ideologies, false philosophies? Know your doctrine. It's, it's the idea of how do you know a counterfeit you know, $100 bill? It's not that you study all the different counterfeit inks and papers and typesets in the world. No, you know that bill. 
you know how it smells, you know what it looks like, you know what it feels like, you, you could recognize it, an expert in the dark. Uh, reminds me of when I was a kid, me and, and my dad were in the baseball card business and, and you know, we handled baseball cards on a, on a daily basis and, and we went and bought some cards once and these cards, you know, my dad had them in there and it was, it was like, something's not right. And I think I was probably 16 or 17 and he hands them to me and, hmm, yeah, something's not right. We, we, we could tell just by the feel that th these were counterfeit. Well, we can tell, we should be able to tell what counterfeit truth is, doctrine. We shouldn't be tricked by men, but, 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 but beware, you will be attacked by crafty, deceitful, scheming men. Let me repeat, there are men out there, people out there who are going to try to distract you from what God's word says, to listen to their lies, their new way, their new, their new view of Jesus, their tricks, it's craftiness, it's deceitful scheming. So be on guard. Instead, chapter five, we were reminded to be imitators of Christ. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Don't be like, oh, there's this guy and he seems like he's the father of the year and he's amazing and he's done X, Y, Z. Follow him, follow him, follow him. And then five years later, we see him on news for other things, right? That's not who we follow. He should never have been your standard anyway, especially if he's on TV. Um, I don't know what, why we haven't learned from that, but uh, we're imitators of Christ. We follow Christ. We walk in love, not in foolishness, but in wisdom. And what's wisdom and, and foolishness? We find that in the scriptures. This is our blueprint. This is our standard. We again, in our drive for self, come to life. It starts in the home. And we say, okay, we're going to look at children of fathers today. How am I a good child? Do you evaluate that with scripture? Do you evaluate that with the kids you go to school with? How am I a good father? Do you evaluate that by, by scripture? Do you evaluate it by how you think you're doing today? See, good is the enemy of great. Most fathers, most children are good, at least on occasion. Even Charles Manson loves his mama, right? But, but are you striving for great? Not great for yourself, great for Christ, great for loving the other person. Part of the problem with these relationships, especially at home, is, well, I, I love you, right? That. I, I love you. You know I love you. I've been with you for 15 years. Come on. You know, what, what is it? The uh, fiddler on the roof? You know, the, the son, you know, I cook for you. I clean for you. Of course I love you. Doesn't that show and prove real love? Yeah, elements. But the problem is the familiarity breeds contentment, right? 
familiarity is like, well, I don't have to say I love you anymore. I mean, I've already said it like 3,000 times. You know. I don't have to show you I love you. I mean, you know, I, I took you out the first 14 years of, you know, Valentine's Day. We're past that. We're past that. Flowers, they die. Who needs flowers? Forget that. You know, I don't even have to say anything anymore. You know I love you. It's that familiarity, and it goes from not saying I love you and doing those sweet things to the bickering, the biting, the snapping, and before you know it, you know, uh, you're that couple. Um, you don't want to be that couple that's biting and entertaining everybody for the wrong reasons. Well, <clears throat> so what do we do? We, we come to Scripture we, we, we want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And what does scripture tell us? Okay, let's go to boot camp. Let's talk about, let's start with in chapter six, children, are you listening? Now, children, put your ears on. By the way, how many people in the room, how many of you are children? Oh yeah, we all have to listen. I know you wanted to get to the next. No, we're all somebody's child. We're all somebody's children. At some point, even if you can't remember, you were a little child. Um, so, so we let's listen now. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment. And with the promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Well, that's nice. Children, you get a blessing by obeying and honoring your parents. Well, <clears throat> remember, we're talking about, we've been talking about in this idea of subject and subjection. We're, we're talking about not value and importance, right? This isn't a spiritual, you know, uh, who, who's spiritually, you know, a child or, you know, an adult. No, we're, we're, we're this is a, a period of, of time and children obeying their parents. If you still have parents, you, you still have to obey them. You have to honor them all the days of your life. That's not a bad thing. That's a beautiful thing. Especially as you get older, you ask people and most of the time they, they wish they had more time and, and, and had more intake from their parent and gleaning from their wisdom. And so there's, this is just like part of that chain of command. Like I said before, we, we all start off as children. We'll all go through that process. So it's a great reminder to us, whether you're a baby, a kid, a teen, or a young adult, or now adulting, or now an older adult. The idea is to, we're, we're pressing towards maturity. And part of that is obeying your parents. What, what does obey mean? It's not complicated. Uh, it means you listen to what they say. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. <clears throat> this is known as the, the great Shema. It's the, what, what every Jewish family would have started life with. And this is the instruction. 
given from God to, to the people of Israel. Now, this is the commandment, the commandment. You want to talk about emphasis? The commandment, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach to you. So again, the standard children is that your parents aren't just winging it. They're, they're, they're teaching you. They should be instructing you from the commandments and the statutes, the guidelines, the judgments of the Lord. The wisdom that we're trying to give you is from the Lord. If you're doing it right, not from other books that other men are writing that may have schemes, right? And you'll, why? Verse 1, chapter 6, that you might do them in the land which you're going to, to over to and possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and all your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord your God and your fathers have promised you, in the land flowing of milk and honey. So the Israelites have just fled Egypt, 400 years of bondage. Now they're going to the promised land, to Israel. Right now they're still in the desert roaming and they're getting ready to go. And so God commands uh, parents, God commands uh, fathers that, look, you need to teach your children. Um, whose responsibility is it to teach your children? It's your responsibility to teach children. It's not the state's. Don't stop softening it and call your local school by the cute name that they spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, Mount whatever, or, you know, maybe it's just the name of the, sea, the, the city. It's a public secular institution. Say, say what it is. We don't say it that way because it reveals a lot of truth, right? Parents are called to raise their children. Um, so here's the great Shema. This is the first thing, and hopefully my children remember it, but I don't think they did since they were just born. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The very first thing is you need to understand that there is a God, there's a God of the universe, there's only one God, one God alone. That's what's being established. You don't know anything if you don't know that. And we see how important that is. Today, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? That we don't even know or understand that there's a creator. Because we don't understand that there's a creator, we don't follow his book. Because we don't follow his book, we don't know, or, or trying to be nice here, we, 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 we don't know our, our right from the left, we don't know what a man or a woman is. All of it goes back to this. So, parents are taught, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them with when you sit on your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals of your forehead and you shall write them down in your doorposts and your house and on your gates. So children, 
Your parents are going to teach you diligently. Like it. Talk to you all the time. Obey it. They're going to sit down with you, by you, real close, even closer than you want at times. They're going to walk with you and hang out with you. Even when you're 13. They're going to be with you when you go to bed. And when you wake up, they're going to be standing there staring at you already. (laughs) Don't be shocked by this. This is their job. This is what they do. When we say children, obey your parents, uh, you know what it encompasses? A whole lot of stuff. So, get your mind right. Be willing to submit yourself to that authority, to that love, to that attention, to that devotion, to that instruction. But I don't want to hear it. That's why you need to hear it. But, but, but I, I, I want to do it my way. No, your way is not good. Your way is going to hurt you. But, but why can't I just try? Why can't I just wing it? Because you have no winging it privileges. We, we've seen how that goes. Maybe unless you're from Texas, then you can do what you want. But no, no winging it. Look, we're called, children are called to obey. And again, here's that quick reminder, because we know where your mind's going to go. Yeah, but you don't know my parent. They're, on, they're, they're crazy. <laughs> In the Lord. So you can put your finger just, okay, you don't, just children in the Lord obey. The fear of the Lord, the trust of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you fear and trust the Lord, you you get wisdom. Part of that then is, you know what you'll do? You'll start obeying your parents. You'll start obeying your parents. That's a good thing. Uh, Colossians, turn with me to Colossians 3. This is a a parallel passage. And again, Colossians 3.20 says it this way. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Okay. What do, okay, all right, my dad, he's he's pretty good at baseball. I'll listen to him in baseball. Oh, my dad, he's, you know, he knows about cars, so I can listen to him about cars. Uh, you know, he, he knows some stuff, uh, you know, uh, about building things. I can listen to him that. But in this other stuff, well, he doesn't know anything. He's, he's you know, he hasn't, he hasn't taught fifth grade for the last 25 years. Think about that one for a second. That's kind of weird. Somebody who's only been in fifth grade forever is smart. Anyway, side note. Um, children, listen, learn to listen, learn to listen to your parents in all things. Not some things, not a few things, not the things that you like, not the things that you agree with. Remember, the barometer isn't, isn't well, when, when the 30-year-old can agree with the 8-year-old's ideas, then we'll listen. No, the 8-year-old has to agree with the 30-year-old, right? 
Um, it's the epitome of self-delusion. Children, learn to be obedient to your parents in all things, all things, all subjects, all manners. They may not be experts in every single thing, but they're in charge over you in all things. Um, why? I don't want to do that. That's a terrible idea. Again, one of those awesome, amazing benefits of the local public, secular, government school is, well, you don't need to listen to your parents. Listen to me. I've been in fifth grade for 20 years. Um, listen to me. I mean, God forbid that I, I would you know, have a different doctrine, which by definition you do, to either philosophy or psychology or secularism or whatever the latest, greatest flavor is. Listen to me. I'm not trying to trick you. Uh, I'm not trying to be crafty. I'm not deceitful. Um, which, watch the local news and you'll see local school boards being crafty and deceitful and scheming and not honest. Um, why, children, should you listen to your parents? This is pleasing to God goes back to Deuteronomy 6 when God says, listen, parents, I want you to raise your children. It begins with teaching them about me and who I really am. And you know what? When you do that, that pleases me. So children, remember that when parents are teaching you, they're doing what God is calling them to do. And it pleases God when the parents are teaching their own children and it pleases God when the children are obeying the parents. It, it all works in harmony. It's a beautiful thing. Well, there's reward and blessing for those who follow and obey their parents, but there's also consequences when you don't. Uh, Proverbs 30, I came across this just the other day and one of those great little spots where you've read it a million times. I've got it highlight, highlighted and marked and can't ever remember reading this. And all of a sudden, boom, here it pops out. And here's a gentle reminder to children. The eye that mocks a father. The eye that mocks a father. The way you look, right? That look. And scorns a mother. Back sass. Let's, you know. Say it what it is. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother. The ravens of the valley will pick it out. And the young eagles will eat it. How's that for a consequence? <laughs> that if you as a child want to give your father that the look. Um, how would you like it if a raven just kind of flew down and plucked your eye out and the eagle swooped down and, and ate it. Now, fortunately, that's not what's happened. Otherwise, we'd all be blind. <laughs> um, there's consequences here. There's consequences. Not only are we 
calling children to obey, obey their parents. But the second verse is probably even more important. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment. And again, this really goes to uh, towards that lifelong, you are somebody's child for life, meaning you honor them for life, meaning you start by honoring them right now. Honor is a, an interesting word. Honor is not always, quote unquote, obeying when you're, you know, 55 years old and your parents 75 years old and and you know the, the your parent isn't exactly giving you direct commands anymore they give you suggestions they give you wisdom they give you in advice but but maybe you have to and as the head of your own house you you choose a different path but you're still honoring them you're honoring them by listening to them you're honoring them by giving them respect um, you're honoring them by valuing them. And see, that's part of the problem with the selfishness is, well, I only value me. I only value what I think is good. And, and, and I'm going to devalue, especially in this context, my parent. The irony upon ironies is we, we're all subject to somebody, to something. And so maybe you're rebelling against your parent, but you're following somebody else. You think you're being original and unique. You think you're being, you know, special. You're a unicorn. Yeah, we've got a hundred unicorns. They sit on the left side by the bleachers next to the band, right? And down below, just south of the band, are, you know, the, the kids with the green and the blue hair. And behind them are the kids in all black. And next to them are the kids in the letterman's jackets. It's like th these things haven't changed. It's the same. And then, you know, you go talk to a fifth year old. Yeah, this is cool. This is so new. Nobody's ever tried putting a piercing in their nose. <laughs> I'm going to tap my whole body. It's like tats are in the Bible. What are we talking about? Marking your body for some, some clan is nothing new. Uh, the only thing new is trying to identify that with Christ. That's new. No, I'm not saying if you know you tattoo or pierce, you know that you can't be saved or anything like that. But but don't tell me that you're. That's what Jesus wants you to do, because that's not in the Bible. What you need to do with that is obey your parents. And I know that one's a stickler, huh? <laughs> Honor your parents. Maybe they have something to say about it. They don't care. They don't. Then that's on you. Up to you guys. But part of honoring, obeying includes some of that stuff. Practically speaking. Well, remember, Jesus is our example, right? Jesus is our example. Um, turn with me to Luke. Luke chapter two. Luke chapter two. Sometimes we forget that, and really, this is what astonishes me when I think of how Christ emptied himself and, and came on earth. I, I think of being a baby and being sub, in subjection as a child is, a, is hard for me to get my mind wrapped around. And then I come to Luke chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 41, and, and reminded that 
that Jesus was a teenager? Uh, verse 41, and his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he came, became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents were unaware. But supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now, what an interesting time, right? It's like, all right, we're going we, to we're gonna go uh, to Jerusalem. We got to do, you know, the Passover and we're all traveling. Around. And somehow you lose track of your 12-year-old. <laughs> That's a, it's a different time. It's a different era, right? It's not a big deal. Um, they have relatives. They have people. We're, we're all together. Verse 45. Well, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about after three days that they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. So here's Jesus at 12 in the temple, having biblical conversations with experts of theology and doctrine, right? This is where his intellect is at 12. And all those who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He's smart. He's brilliant. This, this obeying has nothing to do with how smart you are or how intelligent you are. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. So, you know, losing track of your 12-year-old while you're you know, going out of town for a day is okay. But three days starts to push it. Verse 49, and he said to them, why is it that you're looking for me? Do you not know that I had uh, um, know that I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in his heart. And Jesus kept a child's job is to increase in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. How do you increase in stature and wisdom and favor with God? Obey your parents. That's what God is instructing the children to do. Now notice here, Jesus is under no delusion. My daddy is in heaven. I'll obey you. Yes, mama. Right away, mama. In subjection. In subjection. If Jesus, if Jesus can put himself in this temporary subjection of his earthly parents, knowing that someday he's going to grow up and be Jesus, right? Um, then we can too. Then we can too. Kids, be patient. Wait your time. Be in subjection. We see a, a, another beautiful example of Jesus. Now Jesus is a man in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, and it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's just before Jesus is going to be betrayed. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows the game plan, right? 
Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Why? Because he knows he's getting ready to be crucified. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved. We see in, in Luke 22 that he's, he's, he's drops of blood are, are dripping from him because the, the point of this grieving to this point of death, Jesus is, is, is under duress, as, as, as much duress as you could possibly conceive, conceive. Now, we stress about certain things, right? Making mortgage payments, paying the bills, kids, all that. But imagine your greatest fear. Just imagine that and knowing it's going to happen. Most of the things we fear don't even don't don't go out that way, right? So my dad's famous saying, it's not a problem until it's a problem. That's helped me out a lot, especially in parenting. We we can we can build up this whole scenario that, that's so dark and, and abysmal, but it doesn't happen. Well with Jesus, he knows it's going to happen. And he's feeling all that stress and pressure. Verse 39, and he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prays in this stress, in this pressure. He goes to saying, my father, he goes to his father in heaven. If possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as thou wilt. This is Jesus Christ. This is the king of the universe. This is the Messiah. And he goes to his father in subjection and says, last chance is there another plan keep in mind not my will but your will but can we do it another way I'm willing to change this if, if you are and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, can, are, are you sure? Second time. But again, the reaffirmation, thy will be done. I am in subjection to you. I will obey you, father. But can we do it another way? Verse 43, and again he came and found them sleeping, and for their eyes were heavy, and he left them again, and he went away, and he prayed a third time. The same thing once more. Now we're not given the third answer, which is the same, we can assume. And so, verse 45, then he came to his disciples, said to them, are you still sleeping? And taking... Your rest, behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into, into the hands of sinners. Arise, let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let's go. Let's go. I will obey. I will submit. I will follow. I will yield. Not my will, your will. This is the pattern. This is our pattern. But see, children forget. Children forget 
that part of this obedience to parents isn't just, that's the law. God said it, got to do it. It's just very, very sterile, right? God isn't like just some judge in a courthouse or, or a politician in, in, in D.C. Or, or a founding father who wrote the Constitution of the law, and I've never seen that guy. And that's not who a, a parent is. Children, you know who your parents are? Your mom who for nine months carried you in her, in her body? And, and while you wreaked havoc in there, you're in there doing backstrokes, <laughs> synchronized swimming, you know, all this stuff. Mama's like, you know, morning sickness, pain, hot, sweats, bodies, just, you know, again, I, it's just like, you know, just getting completely demolished. Um, no big deal. Oh, by the way, the birthing, it, it's birth pains. Part of the consequence of Eve is I get the blessing, the, this great blessing of it's going to hurt. <laughs> oh, well, no, they have uh, drugs. Well, I've been there and it still hurts. Um, it's going to hurt. It did hurt. And then you're born and she gets this wonderful blessing of, of changing your diaper every day for years. How special is that? Can't get enough of that. <laughs> Except for when you throw up and then they got to clean up that. And the tying of the shoes, endless tying of the shoes. Thank the Lord for Velcro. <laughs> and then you get to cook for them and special preparation of the meals. If it's not from your own body, which again, it hurts. That's not fun. Um, then you get to clean for them, not just pick up and clean after them, you know, the clothes and all that kind of, but, but you get to scrub their bathroom because that's a special treat that all moms love to do, especially with their teenage sons. It's fantastic. You know, maybe they got to sew and patch and mend and, and, you know, then they get to go shop and shop for clothes and that's never appreciated either. Um, and this all happens from sunup till sundown. They go to bed after they get up earlier, day after day after day, and they love it. And their biggest regret is when you grow up and grow out. That's love. That's what they're doing for you. That's what they did for you. Obey. Fathers go out and they work and toil and, you know, who knows what they're doing on a weekly basis on the job, risking possibly their, their life and making sacrifices with their money, the money that they go and make and they could go on vacation or get season tickets somewhere, do, you know, whatever they want. No, they buy you the bike. They send you to the game. They, they buy you the nice clothes. You get teased and mocked from your parents, from your kids because of how you look and dress and stuff. And it's like, yeah, because you're taking all the money for the cool new Jordans and things like that. The luxuries of life are given up or sacrificed for the child. Kids, you have to remember that this isn't just happening like in an in a empty space. That there, there's love and support 
that's there and responsibility. Next week, we'll look at that responsibility, a father's responsibility. And for a parent, there's a never-ending pressure to, to get this child that you're just a steward of. You're just borrowing this child till you present them back to the Lord. And there's pressure physically to help them grow up and mature and mature into adulthood and spiritually as well. In the context, again, of walking in a manner worthy of the calling, learning how we, we walk in it, the, the idea of subjection doesn't escape any of us, especially as children. But we, 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 we have to understand that this, this life of subjection and obedience begins as a child, but it will never end. There's nobody in this room who's autonomous to do whatever they want to do. Everybody here is answering to somebody, most to multiple people, and especially for children. When you, when you think and you look at your parents, you just think they're like some kind of autocrat, you know, king that's just willy-nilly giving you instructions. No, there's a, there, there's a, the, a, a whole... Bible that's behind that and the wisdom that we're gleaning from the scriptures and trying to teach. There's our own life that, that we're helping you learn and understand. And then we're learning from others as well and grandparents and the whole team's involved. Be patient with the process. Be patient with the process. But the process of loving to learn begins as a child in the home. And if you don't conquer that, if you don't conquer giving up yourself as a young person, it's going to be harder as an older one. One of the craziest things that I, I notice now on your little, you know, clickbait, Instagram, YouTube kind of stuff is, is you know, that, that college woman. I love when they, especially when they're like, I'm a woman. As they're literally screaming, kicking like a little donkey on the floor kicking and screaming and crying. I'm a woman, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, right? It's like, I have a niece that, that just did the same thing. Except they're not, you know, in their fourth year of college, they're in their like fourth month. <laughs> Children, trust your parents. Obey your parents. Trust the Lord. You're trusting the Lord first and foremost by trusting and obeying your parents. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for...